You are listening to The Tish with Rabbi Michael Knopf, a Jcast Network podcast. For more information about Rabbi Michael Knopf, please visit MikeKnopf.com. For more information about other Jcast Network podcasts and blogs, please visit jcastnetwork.org. Yeah. 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 Um, the, the question was, it's, it's a great question. So the question is, we have Passover coming up, and we have you know a story of uh, Jews and Egyptians, um, where the Egyptians are haves and the Jews are have-nots, and how is that any different from today? So I think that there are a couple things I want to say about it. The first is, um, I'm not convinced that the story is historically accurate, but that's a topic for another conversation. That's a topic for another conversation. Um, so I think that uh, that there are two. I think that I think that the um, the scale of it is different. The scale of the disparity is different. Um, what it meant to be a have and a have not in the ancient world is so radically different than what it is today. I mean, just as an example, you know. Um, because there was no real medicine in the ancient world, you were just as likely to die from a, you know, from from the flu if you were a wealthy aristocrat um, than if you were a slave, right? And it had nothing to do with whether or not you could pay your hospital bill, right? Um, but now the disparity is much more stark. Yeah. The I mean, listen. Okay, so the first is uh, I'm not I'm not totally seeing the connection between the death of the firstborn and the issue of a disparity of wealth. But I think if what you're saying is that there's always been inequality. Um, So that so, so that's so that that that's not so I, I hear you okay so there's two yeah right yeah so yeah. I don't think I don't think it's either or, yeah. honestly. Um, I think that uh, you're no, right. I, agree. I think there's always been. Uh, what I agree. Middle class is is fairly a 20th century phenomenon, from my understanding. Yeah. So there was really nothing in the middle for. Okay. So okay. So there's 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 a few things on the table that need to be uh, addressed each in turn. Um, 
So has inequality always existed? Yes. Um, is the inequality that you're describing, Stacy, um, a, 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 a on on both sides of the equation, an egregious example of inequality? Yes. Is the reason that our tradition makes that our central story um, uh, an ethical imperative to uh, uh, for the Jewish people to create a society in which there is no uh, um, there, there is no similar kinds of disparity between Egyptian and Israelite? I think the answer is yes. Right. So um, you can see um, uh, number verse uh, text number six here. Uh, in the book of Deuteronomy, the Lord your God is God supreme and Lord supreme, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who shows no favor and takes no bribe, but upholds the cause of the fatherless and the widow, and befriends the stranger, providing him with food and clothing. You too must befriend the stranger, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. Right? No less than 26 times in the Bible, we are given a set of instructions with the caveat, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. Right? Whether or not the experience of slavery was uh, his, is, a, is a historical fact. The Torah's uh, projection is that um, is that this the 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 the, um, uh, the, uh, the story of enslavement and liberation is embedded into the fabric of who we are because it's supposed to drive what we do. And what we do is to create a society that uh, um, befriends strangers, that pursues justice, if you see number five, and justice uh, means nothing if it doesn't mean equity. Um, and uh, number four says it even more starkly, there shall be no needy among you. Right Now, I agree, the Bible wouldn't have said that if it didn't live in a society in which there were needy. Right? So I'm not saying that there was never poverty before the 21st century. What I'm saying is that the, that the, um, the, the, the size and scope of the disparity in our time, I think, is greater than at any other time in human history. Um, and we could, I mean, we don't have a lot of time to, to get into all the particulars about it. So I, I think what you're saying is true, that there's a lot more awareness of the disparity. That's true, too. But I think that the, that the extent of the disparity is also uh, much more pronounced in, in our time. Um, the other thing I wanted to say was about the uh, environmental um, uh, uh, issue. Um, so I'm not a scientist, but I am uh, an uh, admirer of science. Um, and the scientific evidence on this is uh, pretty clear and conclusive. Um, that, uh, um, that throughout the course of the history of the planet, there have been fluctuations in temperature. However, in, since the dawn of industrialization, the Earth has been getting hotter, and the heat and the uh, and the the temperature of the planet directly correlates with the emission of carbon into the atmosphere as a result of um, of, of industrial production um, and of modern consumption. Um, now, will the planet ultimately be fine? Yeah, the planet will ultimately be fine uh, because 
the planet has a tremendous capacity to heal itself. The question is whether or not human beings will be fine, uh, and that is um, if you don't care about whether or not human beings are going to continue to be able to live in Florida, okay, that's fine. I don't actually think that everybody shouldn't live in Florida because I, I don't really like Florida, but um, <laughs> I just don't want all the Floridians to move to Virginia because there's no more Florida because all the oceans have risen because of the melting of the polar ice caps, right? And eventually, where uh, um, uh, it, it, it could happen, it could happen, but here's what science is telling us, is that it's not happening as a natural fluctuation of the Earth's temperature. Right. So, so, um, so, the, so, how are we as humans going to change that? I mean, I think that there are things that we can do to change that. Um, it means uh, uh, changing our methods of production and consumption, which means that it's a painful solution, maybe for some people. Uh, um, uh, certainly, if it wasn't a painful solution, it wouldn't be such a contentious issue. Um, but. Uh, but but it, it, it's something that if, that if we care not so much about the health of the planet, but about the future of human existence on the planet, right? Then it's something that that calls for our attention, and there are things that we can do about it, right? The, as clear as the scientists are that um, that that uh, humans have caused this rise of global temperature, they are also clear that humans can solve the problem of the rise of global temperature, um, or at least turn it around roll it back. Um, okay, alright, so this seems, because we only have a few minutes left, um, a good time to, because we already have started anyway, to open it up for conversation. So... I think that the that I mean I, I mentioned it before, and I think that the uh, that, that the major issue that, um, that that we as a civilization, and I think uh, that that we as Jews um, are, are are wrestling with and needing to respond to is um, the um, implications of the internet and, and information revolution. Um, so the idea that there are. Um, uh, uh, many uh, pathways to wisdom out there, and that we have so much access to, uh, to information. So what that, that does a couple things. First of all is that it, it challenges existing institutions. One of the reasons, I think, the decline of uh, organized religion in modern life is that it used to be that if you, you know, wanted answers to, the, to your deepest life question, you would have to go to your local priest or rabbi. Right? Um, maybe you could send correspondence to the Pope and the Pope might answer your question. But really, that was the best you had. Right? And so you needed the local church. You needed the local synagogue. Right? Today, you don't. Because I could go to askmoses.com and ask my Jewish question. Right? I could go to chabad.org and find out what time candle lighting is. Right? I could... And, and it's not just it's not just like like religious institutions that like everybody's in the business of meaning making right so there's a there's a democratization of meaning right so like Oprah 
when Oprah was on TV was religious life for a lot of people. There was an article I was just reading in the New York Times about uh, TED conferences, the TED Talks. You guys know about TED? So um, the article, you can look it up, was called The Church of TED. Um, and it said how TED is really replacing for a lot of uh, uh, young people the role that traditional religion used to play. And the thing about TED is that you can watch it on YouTube, right? Um, I don't have to go somewhere to hear the TED Talk. So, um, and it's expansive in its view, right? So the, the thinking about religion is that it dealt with like little, tiny, like parochial religious issues. Um, and didn't deal with the expansive questions of, uh, of, of, uh, of human life. So that's what I think, if you look at um, what uh, uh, Heschel says, um, uh, number 10, Abraham Joshua Heschel, a great 20th century rabbi, um, quote number 10 on the back part of the page, says, this is the opening line of his most famous book, God in Search of Man, and I love this. He says, it's customary to blame secular science and anti-religious philosophy for the eclipse of religion in modern society. It would be more honest to blame religion for its own defeats. Religion declined not because it was refuted, but because it became irrelevant, dull, oppressive, insipid. When faith is completely replaced by creed, worship by discipline, love by habit, when the crisis of today is ignored because of the splendor of the past, when faith becomes an heirloom rather than a living fountain, when religion speaks only in the name of authority rather than with the voice of compassion, its message becomes meaningless. Right? So, the, so what? So anybody? So that's. I heard this great phrase the other night. Um, uh, um, that's inside the text. Who wants to give me the outside of the text? Like, who who can summarize that text for me? What is it? What is Heschel saying there? Mm -hmm. Right, religion in itself, and we can fix it, right? What did you say? Right, it better be relevant. So here's the thing about you, what the internet, um, the challenge of the internet is um, that authority matters less than meaning, right? So just because I say something um, doesn't mean that it matters any hill of beans if it's not meaningful and relevant to the people listening. Right? Which is different than a generation ago. A generation ago, I could have stood up here, and more or less, you would have like nodded in polite agreement. Right? Maybe you would have disagreed, but um, because I'm the rabbi, exactly. Right? Um, but that's not true anymore. Which is which? Which is partially um, the, one of the I think causes and challenges of uh, of, uh, of of terrorism. Right? Is that um, uh, is that nobody speaks. For, uh, with authority for Islam anymore. Nobody speaks with authority for Christianity anymore. Nobody speaks with authority for Judaism, not that they ever did, right? Um, if someone once said to me, if you, if you hate organized religion, you'll love Judaism. <laughs> right? um, which means that, which means that um, a persuasive and compelling ideological message um, is going to move people to act in whatever ways that message is compelling them to act. Right? So if the message of ISIS is persuasive and compelling to people, it doesn't really matter what I have to say about it or what the, uh, the Ayatollahs in Iran have to say about it or what, uh, what, what Muslim religious leaders elsewhere have to say about it. It doesn't matter what they have to say. Right? All that matters is presenting a compelling counter-argument to that ideology. Right? Bombs don't matter. 
Clearly they don't know. Right? Um, so, uh, so that's, I think, the, so, and, and what, and what Heschel is saying is that we can't blame science and anti-religious philosophy for the decline of religion. What you've gotta blame is religion for getting too invested in its own sense of authority and not invested enough in the real questions that people are struggling with. Rita, you had a question. I know some parents who would disagree with you. The way we did before we came to America. I think that we spread out the the faith. Right. So we're living in one of the first periods in human history where the religion that you were born into is no longer likely to be the religion that you practice as an adult. Whether that means you practice no religion or you move into another religion. More Americans today migrate to other traditions and other faith communities than stay in the ones uh, from which they were born. We live in a fairly rootless world, which is related to the interconnectivity of, of, uh, of our world. We're a very mobile society. Now, do, can we, can we like say that's a decline, right? That's a, maybe we will lament they don't live with their parents. Yeah. Or we can say, okay, given the fact that we have a society of blenders, benders, movers, and switchers, right? How do we, how do we create, uh, or present, um, a, a compelling, um, a compelling uh, uh, core of wisdom uh, for people on their religious journeys. Right? That's, for me as a rabbi, thinking about like the 21st century from a Jewish lens, that's the question that I struggle with, wrestle with, on a minute-by-minute daily basis. That's what dry, like, gets me up in the morning and puts me to bed at night. It's like, I, because these are, this is my, this is my g- g- generation, right? I, I like see what's happening out there. I see like the hunger that people have but just because my parents practice it doesn't mean that it's right for me. So then my response needs to be, okay, I agree with you, just because your parents practice it doesn't mean it needs to be right for you. So let me present an argument for why I think that this is a worthy uh, way of approaching the world and living life. Other well, questions? Right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Of choosing Judaism, of going to Schultz, of going to the 80s, of 
are so personable and you are their age and you're adorable and how are you going to get the, I mean, you can't do it. He's wandering about all of Australia to her daughter. I mean, <laughs> Conversation for anybody who wants to stay and, and have it. Yeah, but yeah, but for those, I can talk for just a few more minutes. But for those of you who do, those of you who, who do need to go, do not feel uh, um, embarrassed or like I'm going to be offended if you get up and I, I won't take it personally. Um, but okay, so so no, but here's but here's I, I hear what you're saying. So here's what I would say in response. Um, Because of some of the phenomena that I've been talking about, the realities of the world we live in, we live in, in a much more uh, complex, um, 
confusing, challenging world than the one that my parents grew up in. Uh, and they grew up in a pretty complex and challenging world too, and more than their parents grew up in. And I think that there's, there's, there's more to learn uh, in our world. There's more to grapple with. Um, there's more awareness, or there's more like sensory, there's things bombarding you at all times. So I, I, I hear what you're saying, right? That there's not, not like a sense of like stickiness or commitment on the part of, uh, of younger generations, but I don't see it that way. Really, I see it as, um, as um, confusion, right? Uh, or being overwhelmed, right? And on some level, like just like getting by in the day to day is hard enough. Right? Especially in a world where I think that it is, people are, uh, it's, it, um, even in America, it's harder to like, get that middle class dream today than it was for my parents' generation. Right? Um, and so um, people my age are really struggling. Right? That they're maybe parents who want their kids to live at home, but more kids today are living at home after college because the, the prospect of like, getting that middle class job and building that middle class life is way harder for people today than it is then. So like having the leisure time to to invest in religion and be on boards and things like that, like you know, it's it's much harder. So I don't it I I, I, I really try hard not to um, not to see it as, as laziness. I mean so obviously for some people it is, but I think it's it's um it's the challenges of, of living. Um, and the other side of it is I see young people investing lots of time and lots of energy and lots of resources into those practices and wisdom systems that they experience as being meaningful and true. So people who have no time to come to school are spending an hour a day in yoga, right? And they are going on a, uh, a, a week-long meditation retreat um, in Charlottesville, and they're um, uh, and they're and they're saving up to go to Burning Man. Right to have a spiritual experience in the desert, right? So, um, so it's not that they don't have the wherewithal to invest themselves in things that they find worthwhile and meaningful. It's that I think what what and this is not just Judaism because if you think that, that the Jewish community has a problem, like just be glad you're not a mainline Protestant church right now, okay? Um, the existing religious structures um, have problems because because they don't work or because they're not. Uh, um, presenting a, uh, an approach to religious life that works, right? Um, and I think that compounding that problem is the branding problem of religion, which you know, we have Al Qaeda and ISIS to thank for that, right? Um, you know, so like no no Buddhist is flying planes into buildings, right? But the perception is the Abrahamic traditions uh, are the ones that are responsible for all the violence in the world. So I'm going to go to Eastern traditions because they're peaceful. Right and 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 not participate in the event, even though right. Look, I, this is why I brought this. Right, um, look at uh, texts seven and eight. Two texts that I love from the Mishnah. Look at eight first. Right, this is one that maybe you're familiar with. Hillel says, "Be among the disciples of Aaron, loving peace and pursuing peace, loving people and bringing them close to Torah." Right, like that should be the verse that's emblazoned in all of our. Uh, Jewish institutions, right? I think that would help resolve the branding problem of the Abrahamic faiths if what we said is that at our core, what we believe is the promotion of a peaceful and loving world, right? And number seven, Rabbi Shimon, this is the last text in the entire Mishnah, which is the foundational text of Jewish law, 
Okay, so this is the very last thing the Mishnah says. Right? Rabbi Shimon Mechalafta said, the Holy Blessing One found no vessel containing blessing for Israel, for the Jewish people, except for peace. As it is said, God will give strength to God's people. God will bless God's people with peace. In other words, the, the, the only structure that, uh, uh, through which Judaism and Jews can bring, bring blessing into the world, and the only thing that can save the Jews is the promotion of peaceful communities and peaceful society. Right? That's the very last thing we read in the Mishnah. Right? So if, 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 I, you know, if, I, if I say, okay, you know, the Eastern traditions have a perception of work because they promote peaceful life and inner peace and a peaceful world, I would say Judaism does that too, but that's not the Judaism that we're teaching in religious schools. I'm not talking about Bethel's religious, I'm talking about in general. Right? That's not the Judaism that the Federation is promoting. Right? I mean, that, I mean, there's a whole other dimension of that, which is there's a tremendous amount of investment in um, diaspora Jewish life um, in, uh, the, in, in the support of Israel. But the perception among uh, young people and young Jews is that the promotion of Israel is not the promotion of uh, democratic and peaceful values. Right? Now, I'm not taking a side on that. I'm just saying what the perception is out there. So, but that is a that is a a, a problem in the structure. Right? If we if we say if we say Judaism works because we promote peace, and yet half the Federation's campaign goes to supporting an Israeli government that says under my watch there'll be no creation of Palestinian state, right? The, um, uh, the young people fear in that that half of my money, if I give it to Federation, is going to go to supporting a government that has no interest in peace. Whether or not that's true, I don't want to get into the sides of it, I'm just saying what people fear. Okay? So that's, I think, the, the challenge of like, how do we get people to Judaism. I think that there's a broad perception that, that, that it doesn't work. Absolutely right, and um, you know this goes back to um, the beginning of our conversation today, where you know my my approach to religious life is in some ways like very non-essentialist, right? So I think that you know I, what I mean by that is um, my theology, my my sense of uh, my understanding of God and of the tradition is that you know, Maimonides says that all of Judaism aims at two things the perfection of the body and the perfection of the spirit. Which means that, um, that, uh, that, that all Judaism exists to do, I mean, this is a lot, so it's not like, you know, that's it, right? Uh, is to help us be physically healthy um, and also to create healthy societies. Even that by perfection of the body means not just my personal body, but the body politic, right? So there should be justice and peace and that. And the perfection of the spirit, right? The development of, of, uh, of, of wisdom and, and, uh, and, you know, uh, pursuit of truth, right ideas, spiritual uplift, that sort of thing, right? So that's what Judaism aims for. So if I hear my mommies right in that, I would say that, that those are um, God's goals for human beings. Right? God wants us to live and thrive. 
and to create societies that support living and thriving. Um, and I think that uh, I think that Judaism can help us do that. I don't think it's the only avenue to help us do that. And so my interest in people is that they flourish. And if I can offer tools from the tradition that can help them do that, that's what I want to be in the business of doing. But I don't think it will serve them or me to say that the only way to flourish is to use these tools. Um, I think that that uh, um, uh, I think produces exactly the same kind of like um, oppositional attitude that, uh, that that you're talking about, right? Because that's um, you know my my parents tell me that um, uh, you know that that you can only be healthy if you eat your vegetables, and so I'm gonna like make you sit here to eat your whole plate of Brussels sprouts. And I don't feel any healthier after I eat the Brussels sprouts than I did before I ate the Brussels sprouts. So and when I get up, when I get older, like I'm going to prove to myself is like I'm only going to eat Brussels sprouts if I feel like eating Brussels sprouts, right? Um, so I think the same is true of of, uh, of religion. Right? I don't think it serves to say that um, uh, that you know, that wearing to fill in. You know, it's the only way that you can flourish in life. So, you know, from it, while I have control over you, I'm going to make you wear to fill in, um, and you'll. And, and I think that the um, the what the learning from that is, well, I don't feel any different on the days I don't wear to fill in than the days I do wear to fill in. So, therefore, to fill in must not work. And therefore, I'm just going to, you know, decide to do it or not do it as I get older, rather than um, approaching it as, you know, here's why to fill in can be a meaningful spiritual practice in your life. If you want to take that on and do it, one day, one time, every day, I'm going to give you the tools that you need to help you do that and try as hard as I can to tell you why I think that that's a meaningful choice. Uh, but I would stop short of saying that that is um, a, a choice that if you uh, don't accept upon yourself, you're a terrible sinner and you're going to hell. Um, I don't know if that makes sense to your question. But, um, uh Theology, which my teacher, Rabbi Brad Artson, uh, uh, is a, a big proponent of. And he's, by the way, coming to Richmond uh, uh, April 24th to 26th. Um, and so if you're if you're available at all during that weekend, um, all are welcome to come to all the events at Temple Bethel where he's going to be speaking, member or not. Um, and you won't regret it. So uh, Rabbi Artson... Uh, oh, there you go. Okay. So Rabbi Artson uh, teaches... Um, uh, about process theology, and, and one of the central ideas of process theology, which I think is borne out in um, Jewish texts, um, is that God doesn't have coercive power, God only has persuasive power. Okay? Which is exactly what Stacy's saying about Ken. Right? I cannot, I tried this morning to force my daughter to put on her jacket, right? And I realized, you know, after like, 
having this like wrestling match with her, then I do not have coercive power. Right? It's only going to get worse. Right. I, and she's not even five. Right. She's like, Right. 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 So that's right. 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 So, so that's so that's that's per, that's persuasive power, right? That's right, and and but it's also uh, the realization that she can go outside and not be cold, right? And so my demanding of the jacket is actually totally irrelevant, right? Yeah. 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 Right. 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 Sorry. Can you remind me your name? Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
Her, her, her point was um, she doesn't think Hebrew school has changed since she went. So I can tell you that at Temple Bethel we're working on rectifying that. Um, uh, but uh, <laughs> uh, um, yeah, I, 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 think, I, I think in some ways I agree with you, um, although um, I don't think that the, that the uh, solution is to blow it up entirely. I just think it's the, the solution is to make it something better. Um, but uh, uh, but that's a whole maybe that's a whole other talk is uh, is is reenvisioning religious school yeah so I would I want to just close on on this okay so this is text number eleven because this is what Heschel closed on and I think it's really important if we're thinking about twenty first century challenges because I think this really hits on a lot of, he said it in eighteen seventy three but I think it's uh, still relevant I would say to young people a number of things and I have only one minute I would say to let them remember that there is meaning beyond absurdity. Let them be sure that every little deed counts, that every word has power, and that we do everyone our share to redeem the world in spite of all absurdities and all the frustrations and all the disappointment. And remember I said before that I think that there's a, uh, a sense uh, in our time simultaneously of the, of the smallness of the world and the vastness of the world. Right? And um, uh, there, there is a sense that, that what I do here impacts people over there um, and that I have the capability of making a contribution, um, uh, a, a meaningful contribution to the betterment of the world, although um, there are powerful forces in the world that, um, that, uh, um, uh, that, that impede progress and in which I have no voice. Right? And so there's, a, there's simultaneously a disillusionment, I think, that people have that you know, what they're capable of doing in the world is very minimal. And so what I think Heschel reminds is that from the Jewish point of view, there's no insignificant deed. There's no insignificant action. And above all, remember that the meaning of life is to live life as if it were a work of art. You're not a machine. When you're young, start working on this great work of art called your own existence. One, remember the importance of self-discipline. Second, study the great sources of wisdom. Don't read the bestsellers. Um, and third, remember that life is a celebration, or can be a celebration. There's much of entertainment in our life. And entertainment is destroying much of our initiative and weakens our imagination. What's really important is life as a celebration. In a very deep sense, I would say that the addiction from which so many people suffer is due to the fact that man cannot live such a shallow life, stale. He needs exaltation. He needs moments of celebration. So I want to uh, bless you that you live a life um, of, with moments of celebration, uh, that uh, we rise above the absurdities and confusions and challenges of our era um, and uh, contribute each in our own way uh, to the work of life, that, the work of art that is our life um, and the work of art that is our planet, uh, where each of us can contribute a brushstroke to create a masterpiece.